We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with Senior Professional Game Coach Development Lead at the FA, Phil Church. In our book, we talk about the power of storytelling. Today's guest is a master of capturing imagination with his ability to tell stories in his descriptive language. So without further ado, here is a snippet of what to expect today. Just recently, someone sent something through to me about Arsene Wenger, he calls it technical empathy. He said, when you're playing a ball to someone, you've got to play it with empathy for what they're going to do next. So essence of football to flow towards the other goal. So what's the right weight of it? When do you play it? What's the, you know, do you, which foot do you play it to? All of those things. So that reminded me of the more basic saying, you know, never kick a ball aimlessly. And I think it's, you can say that about your coaching. Never coach a session aimlessly. Never, you know, say something aimlessly, uh, a question or what have you. So for me, that was... It's one that really sticks out as being really simple and one that people could just brush off. But in in one way, it's one of the absolute fundamentals of the game. We're excited to welcome Paul McGuinness onto today's episode of the Goldust Podcast. Paul is a highly renowned coach and coach educator who previously spent 28 years at Manchester United, working with and alongside some of the world's best players and coaches. Paul, welcome and thanks for coming on to the Goldust podcast today. Great to be here, um, David. Um, you know, really delighted to come on and share some ideas and thoughts with you. Well, I know there's there's going to be quite a that quite a bit of that taking place. So, P- Paul, first question as always: Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Um. I suppose we to start with it's valuable because it's it's gold it's something valuable and probably probably rare I think because it's it's dust it means that it's you can't always see it it's not always sort of uh, available to people straight away it might be hidden by lots of other stuff that's going on um there's loads out there now uh, on coaching courses on you know on uh, the internet and everything, all sorts of things that mean sometimes a little bit of gold dust is hidden away, it's rare. Or it might be you've just not looked at it to, from a certain point of view until someone points something out to you. Um, so an example would be when I was a young kid, I used to go because my dad was in football and I was dead keen. I used to go with him to matches. He was scouting for his various clubs or so on. So around about the age of 13, 14, I was mad into football. I was practicing like mad. And I would go to all these games with him. I remember this game at Stockport County they used to play on a Friday night. And because it was a Friday night, lots of managers and coaches used to go to those games, you know, before the next day when they were playing. And at half time, I would be pretty shy watching, uh, just listening to what my dad was talking about with a group of coaches. And this guy, I didn't know who it was at the time, but it turns out he was actually a superstar player in the 40s, 30s, 40s at Man City. He was the... Uh, Northern Ireland manager in the 58 World Cup. He was a bit of a De Bruyne of his day, a guy called Peter uh, Doherty, Doherty, Doherty or Doherty. And uh, he turned to me and he said to me, and I remember it really clearly, the simplicity of it, but then it had a big effect. And he turned to me and he said, do you want to be a player, son? I thought, that's kind of him speaking to me, you know? And I said, oh, yeah. He said, I'll give you one little bit of advice. I said, right. And he said, Never kick a ball aimlessly. And it sort of, the simplicity of it sort of hit me. And I couldn't get it out of my head. And I was practicing like mad at that time, against the wall, doing different things, so on. So now just hitting it, I didn't just hit it against the wall. I aimed for a specific spot on the wall because he said, never kick a ball aimlessly. You see lots of people, kids, whoever, they kick a ball sort of aimlessly at a wall. I went to a, a really good academy one time beforehand. They do really good practice striking a ball against um, some boards. So I said to this kid, what you know, where, where are you aiming for? And he said, oh, the boards. I said, yeah, but whereabouts on the boards? And he, he didn't know. And to me, you know, if you don't know where you're aiming for, how do you know if you've got it there? And how can you give yourself the feedback? Was my run-up right? Was the approach right? Was it... So the whole thing of being not kicking it aimlessly means that you can get feedback and get better. You can teach yourself. 
Uh, so I started to play with this lad. I said, well, instead of aiming for the boards, let's aim for the crack between the two boards. And I went, 1-0, there you go, I'm in the lead. And then the next one. And it, 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 I think it's a really important sort of like, it is a threshold concept in a sense, you know, I'm just kicking the ball to someone. And then um, just recently, someone sent something through to me about Arsene Wenger. He calls it technical empathy. He said, when you're playing a ball to someone, you've got to play it with empathy for what they're going to do next. So essence of football to flow towards the other goal. So what's the right weight of it? When do you play it? What's the, you know, do you, which foot do you play it to? All of those things. So that reminded me of the more basic saying, you know, never kick a ball aimlessly. And I think it's, you could say that about your coaching. Never coach a session aimlessly. Never, you know, say something aimlessly, uh, a question or what have you. So for me, that was it one, it's one that really sticks out as being really simple and one that people could just brush off. But in, a, in one ways, it's that one of the absolute fundamentals of the game. Um, Reminded me also of the same thing when when I first I left Man United and went to the FA. And one of the first sessions was an A license session, and they were doing some sort of uh, phase about attacking the box or attacking and defending, and they were coaching through. But all the coaches who were playing in the oh, there's quite a few of them were bouncing the pass on the AstroTurf. It was bobbling. It wasn't running smooth. They hadn't got this technical empathy idea. And I was thinking, well, really, you can't you can't go to the tactics until you've got that idea. You know, it's the old saying, you, you, you need um, what's tactically feasible needs to be technically um, possible. So having that in your mind would be one of the first things I'd have with players so that, yeah, they in the end, it becomes just a habit to always be aiming properly. Um, again, it's, so you get feedback, don't you? you read all the books. So reading uh, Ian Wright's book, he talked about when he started really doing well at, at Crystal Palace and how he would take a bag of balls out and he'd shoot for the side netting. But then he realised shooting for the side netting wasn't enough. So he started shooting four squares on the net. And then he said, well, now I'll try and hit, hit it in off the post. And now I'll try and hit the post and make it come out because you wanted more and more accuracy. Uh, and that would be a big part of it, a striker getting accurate. Um, so they, they, all those little things would be gold dust uh, that I think, um, yeah, are, are fantastic. Um, but like I say, sometimes they, they're, swamped. they're swamped by the whatever's going on at the moment, the latest fad or, or just the fact that it's consensus. So another big sort of... Uh, thing is is thinking the ability to think differently that in itself is gold dust rather than just you know thinking like the crowd so going back to my man united days guy called jim jim ryan played at man united played in america he he was um he's the director of football and we had a like a coach's night uh cpd and we actually went in the local pub here upstairs had a few drinks and then he said he'd come up with a few questions and the question Jim asked all the coaches was, do you all coach the, your players to kick with both feet? Now, the coaches were a little bit dumbstruck. They were like, well, it's a bit of a trick question this because, well, obviously, you, sh you know, we should do that, but do we do it enough? Is that what he's trying to find out or what's happening, you know? So do you? And a few put their hands up and he said, well, why? Why do you? Let's look at all the top players, Maradona. 90% with his left foot, uh, Messi with his left foot, um, um, Beckenbauer with his right foot. They're nearly all one-footed. Okay, they can use the other foot. So maybe you're taking something away from them. If you, I know a few were not sure, gone against convention and somewhere. And in the end, he said, it doesn't really matter what you, you know, what, what your idea, what your thing is. It's just, what's your idea? Have you thought it through or are you just following everybody else? You know, have you got a different idea that might be the way through, you know, the better way of doing things? He wasn't necessarily saying you shouldn't practice your right or left. He was just saying, have you thought about it in a different way? So that that questioning has, has then started in my mind to always be a bit of gold dust because you should always maybe think of it from the other point of view or something different, yeah. I think the importance in listening to your response there is whatever we're doing, we're we doing it with purpose. Are, are we doing it with with meaning? And uh, as you'd said, if if you if you're not, how do you know when you get there? 
because there'd been no direction. There's been no real focus of, of what we're looking at. Now, when we when we look at you, you mentioned on a couple of occasions that you're over at Man United. You, you were at Man United for a total of 28 years, uh, t- 23 of which you were a coach. During that period, who were the people that that constantly challenged and inspired you the most? Um, well, obviously, the, ma- the manager, Sir Alex, was, was the one. I mean, he gave me a job when I was, I was only about 27, 28, running the, the Centre of Excellence. I'd hardly done any coaching. He'd given me a job before that as a... Uh, welfare officer, not many people had that at that time, looking after the digs, the schools. So I was doing that a bit. It was supposed to be part-time, but I just went in every day because I was enjoying it that much with the coach. And then I started coaching uh, with Nobby Styles, who was absolutely brilliant. You know, he gave me such encouragement. He's a World Cup winner. He sat in the bath opposite each other at the end of the night, and he's going, wow, the stuff, the tricks, the things you were doing with those kids. He said, I could never do that. And you're like, wow, he's a World Cup winner, he's, and he's giving me all this praise. He, he was fantastic. So he... Nobby was definitely one who praised you and made you feel good. And, um, yeah, the fact that Sir Alex gave me a job, that's, it's, it's really the equivalent now of the, being an academy manager, but in those days there wasn't as many staff and so on. But at 28 meant that I was, yeah, inspired, but also um, very much determined not to let him down. And I think all the people who ended up working there People say, were you, were you afraid of the hairdryer and all that? And I, I wasn't afraid of that in, in the sense of, you know, you didn't want it to come to you, but I didn't think it would do. Um, I was afraid if I let him down because he'd give me this chance. And and that's, that's you know, was everything about it. But he he was both inspiring and, and challenging because he worked so hard. The standards were so high. Um, I mean, just the way... The way, say, part of my job then was both coaching and trying to scout and recruit some of the best players. So um, what 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 he did was make everybody feel part of it. So had all the scouts would come from all over the UK and so on. And at those days, kids could come on trial in the holidays. So my job then was, uh, the first time particularly I did it, was you've got to organise all the training and trial matches for that week organise the team sheets, organise everything else, organise the kits, getting them back and forth to hotels with minibuses and doing all the stuff, the kit, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was I was busy doing that, for the first, particularly the first time I did it. But what he would do was um, come, he may say, well, you got to have the games in the afternoon because I've got, I've got to be there. So imagine the, the Manchester manager and, and assistant and so on, they're at the under-14 trials. And, and you couldn't you couldn't start them till he arrived. So imagine how the, the scouts, the value that gave the scouts and, and the players. And then, so after each game, he'd have a meeting upstairs at Littleton Road, all the scouts from all over the burn, and he'd go through them one by one, what do you think? So imagine the value they felt. And then if, say, one of their players hadn't done so well, he'd go, well, we've not seen so much of him just a couple of games. He said, you've seen him all the time. Do you want to bring him back? Is he good enough? And he would back them if they were good enough. He'd always back them in that sense. So that it made them feel 10 feet tall. And um, we, what would happen, we'd have that week. And at the end of the week, we went to a small hotel with all the players, all the scouts. And then the first time it happened, I, I couldn't believe it. You had the manager of the club, the assistant manager, the first team coach, the reserve team coach, the youth team coach, the chief scout, all the scouts with the players. And the manager would speak to them all. They'd all go with collar and tie on. So straight away, he's shown an interest in them. He knows the names. He knows the best ones' names, definitely. And um, they'd have a meal. And then at the end of it, players were all in collar and tie. And then at the end of it, there was a sing-song. So the Irish would sing Danny Boy. The uh, the Scottish would sing Flower of Scotland. There'd be, there'd be a sing-song from all the groups. So I knew what singing's like, because you, you, you all join in. Now, now you feel like you're part of something, a family, a and it's the manager doing it with you, having a joke and so on. So the connection you got and belonging and value straight away. And then if we wanted to sign someone, then it would be, um, then we would we'd get invited, we'd invite them and the family to Old Trafford, we'd show them around, my job to show them around, talk about the club, have a meal and so on. But then at two o'clock before a three o'clock match, 
he'd get he'd invite them in the in the office and say, "Well, look, we're right to sign your son because we see a lot in him." Bump, bump, bump. But he's going to have to sacrifice. He's going to have to, you know, can't go out with his mates and the same as they're doing at this age, 15, 16, 17. He's got to sacrifice, and we'll give him the best. And um, he'd always look after the mothers and reassure them what we were doing and so on. And um, they would love it. There'd be photographs with trophies there. And then he'd go, he'd go, um, hang on. Oh, sorry. It's half two. I'll have to go and give my team talk. He said before a three o'clock kickoff. So the parents would sit back and go, wow, we've delayed the his team talk for the team. Now, he's probably given his team talk an hour or so ago. But they, they, they felt like they belonged and he they trusted in him and he trusted in them which then meant when he got when we got them in signed and he's watching the games he'd come and watch the games with the youth team the under 11s he'd just walk over so the massive feeling of belonging and that you had a chance because the manager knew your name he knew who you were he knew your parents so and then what did that do that was a, a trickle-on effect for the rest of us that's how we all were with all the age groups so his example and his work rate on those sort of things was was incredible. Um, and in one little bit bit of advice, he gave me after that first week, I was new in the job. I was a bit nervous. The, the, the scouts were all a lot older than me. I was only 20-odd. So I just got my head down, did the job as well as I could, get all the kit in, do the things, do the there. And on the Monday, he brought me in his office. And you could have hit me with a sledgehammer because he said, right, I've got to speak to you about something. Because some of the scouts think you're arrogant. And I was like, what? I've just been working like, like, yeah, but I know you've got to work. He said, but what you've got to do when they come here is you've got to make the, not a fuss of them, but you've got to make sure that they really know they're valued because they're out in the snow and the rain and they're bringing these players. And when they come to the club, you've got to make, make them feel really welcome. And I was thinking probably, well, I'm only young here. I'm not sure if I could do that, but it was the best advice ever. And then when you watched him with everybody, that's what he did. And then that rubbed off on everybody else. So then you were all like that. And everybody who visited or came felt special and felt part of it. And I suppose you could say that for any business, it's a good, it's, it's a good template, isn't it? Well, Paul, you, you mentioned previously about going to games with your dad. Um, so your dad, Wilf, he actually succeeded to Matt Busby as manager of Manchester United in uh, 1969. So your formative years in the McGuinness household would have been interesting, I'm sure. Um, can you share how growing up in a, a football family helped shape and form your values and beliefs? Yeah, I mean, at the time, you don't think you're much different from everybody else. You, you're just growing up. and you, you know. But then as time goes, you go, oh, yeah, your dad's been a his manager at Man United, play, played for England, so on. And, then, you know, a lot of his friends, the people we knew, we we know them, you know. So, um, but because he was into football, he would kick around the garden with me. I remember very clearly being about four years of age and him bending the ball in the back garden to me. And I said, how did you do that? So he showed me, so we got to, you know, you've got to approach it more from this side. You've got to kick on the side of the ball. You've got to make it spin. Oh, that was me hooked. Now I'm against the garage wall and I'm, I'm fascinated by it. But also he was never pushy with my dad. He never said, come on, we're going to go out. We've got to do this. Got to go and train it. But I was pushing him. Come on, you come out with me. You come, because we'd go on the backfields and, and he'd be crossing balls. And it was a big school, school like a big wire fence. And it'd be diving headers, headers, overhead kicks. He's clipping the ball and he, he's played for England. So it's I'm getting perfect service, you know. Um, but then that also started the sort of standards off. So if I pinged the ball, so I'll ping it harder, ping it to me. And if I missed, he'd give me a look. If I missed twice, it'd make me run and get it. You know, run past him to get the ball because it wasn't accurate enough. That's an accuracy thing again. And so... There was all that, but he was he was all full of fun and entertainment, well, a spirit of football, I call it, you know, where he would do these tricks. I mean, apparently when he was a player, he was he was a hard-working, tough ball winner, but he got all these tricks. They went to Real Madrid. He saw Hento doing this trick, overhead, handstand, back heel. So he'd ping it at his head. I'd have to do this in the field, and he'd ping it at his head. And he used to do it when he was physio at Berry and get Terry Pashley, who's a good left foot, ping it at his head. He'd dive forward onto his hands and do a scissor kick and back, back heel it over his head. It, it was really dramatic, 
really dramatic. So uh, he's always grown up with do something different, have these tricks, do the Rabona, do this, do that. He was full of uh, just football being tr- fun, competitive, but fun and skillful. So that obviously rubbed off massively. So he's got all that from the Man United. But we we would go out on the on the field, maybe my brother might come or something else, and we'd be practicing, three of us for it. And there'd be a load of kids in the, the school field. And it could be 15 of them. They'd be all ages. It could be from any age, from eight to 15, 16, 17, whatever. They could be whatever. And they'd come over and they'd, because they knew he was, they'd go, come on, Wilf, can we have a game? So he'd say, yeah, yeah, give us someone in goal. We'll take a lot of yard, right? So there'd be a load of them. And he'd say to me, well, just try and beat them all. So just try and dribble past past everyone. Now, some of them are seven, eight, nine, ten. But it was just like a big old game in the park. And that's the sort of spirit, sort of football he had that, that was really infectious. And then, like I said, you go into, when I was a kid, I was mad on it. So wherever he was at the club, oh, can I come with you to training? So in the school holidays, I go in. Now, if anybody knows football clubs, that's a bit, if you go in with your dad uh, training, um, well, they go early and they come back late, the coaches. So you're going in early, you're sitting around a lot in the dressing room that you, or you get a ball out or or when I went to Berry, or you had to paint the stands with the apprentices or you, you were doing all the things they would do, pack the kit. So you get to know football clubs, you know, and you get to know male environments and, and what it's like, what you, the do's and don'ts in a football club, where you go and where you don't do. And um, and then I would train before, say, 12, trained with the apprentices who were 16. Did that at York behind the stands. Remember, we had uh, John Byrne there, played for, uh, played for Republic of Ireland, really good player from Manchester. Uh, then I would go to, say, Berry. I'd be 14, trained with the reserves, 16, trained with the first team. So I was always getting an edu- a football education. And of course, I'm watching all the games wherever he was which also gave you a feeling of that tough side of football because he was at York City and he always says York City reached the highest point just before he got there. But he always says it, well, I managed York City in the fourth division, the third division, the second division. Unfortunately for him, it was in reverse order. He got them relegated two years in a row. So if you're at school and you're 12, you've just gone to senior school and your dad's getting the club relegated, you get hammered. You get absolutely hammered. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I remember going in the ground, my sister was there, and there wasn't a lot of fans there, to be fair, at, at York. And they had the worst strip ever. They had a maroon strip with a big Y on the front, like the Y fronts. They didn't, they didn't play well, and they didn't look good. And he was on borrowed time. And I remember the whole of the ground shouting, hey, rock and roll, McGuinness on the dole, you know? And my sister was sort of, she's half crying. I'm saying, well... They've got a point, you know, they're rubbish, you know, <laughs> they're not very good. So you, you, you've got all that growing up with it, um, all that sort of thing. And then, yeah, going scouting with him, going off scouting was great. You know, you go to all these games, you're in the director's box a lot of the time. You meet, you see some top people, you're seeing games. I remember a game up at Newcastle, a reserve game. And there's a young lad playing for Aston Villa, blonde hair up front. And he used to say to me, you give me things to watch. You know, he'd say, well, who's the best player? And I saw well, the blonde lad up front, the way he comes off and he turns and he's skillful. It was Gary Shaw. So I was spotting that right at a young age. But you, you'd learn things, daft things like the feel of the game. So he'd say things like, number six is going to get booked in a minute. And he'd get booked. And you'd think, how does he know that? And he said, well, look, he's just been involved with a tangle there with that player there. He's just had a go at the referee. And now watch him. He's speeding up. Now smash. He's, yeah, he's booked. Or he'd go, you know, he'd say things, daft things like, Oh, they're so far on top now. Um, they, they're going to lose a goal. They would do, and you'd go, "How does he know that?" And he's just seen that they've left a couple of, ba- uh, you know, they're on top. They're on top, but they left a gap at, at the back and they'd score a goal. So you, you'd just be learning football, sort of by osmosis through that sort of uh, living there. Yeah, definitely. So Paul, there's evidently a very rich history in around the game. Obviously, your dad, your own experiences and accumulation of having other people around your dad and you being in that in those positions uh, but y- you spoke about uh, things that you've been developing over a period of time when coaching the, the importance of an, uh, having a, a very clear mental model of, of of what is required has obviously been developed over many years for you 
and having that rich history that you've got yeah. with being in and around your dad for coaches uh, and equally for players how important is it for for us to continue to develop this mental model that that we each may have but actually not furnished it as much as we could do yeah, I, th I think there's yeah, there's a few things that we all we grow up playing football. Um, so so when you play, um, I think sometimes this is what missing a, a lot of the coaches now. They they look from a helicopter view. They've got the tactics board out. They get on the website, so on. But you really you need to you need to look from the player's eye view. So obviously it helps if you've been a player, you've been in certain situations. Now, luckily, as I was growing up, I was playing obviously with my dad and so on around 15 and 16 I just had the most amazing experience really that he would be going to charity games with ex-United players and ex-Man City players sometimes playing against each other or with each other against like the radio station and so on they're playing little non-league grounds and he always used to say well bring your boots I'm not kidding nearly every time I, I went I got a game so I played with Bobby Charlton Sir Bobby Charlton I played with George Best for one game, but Bobby Charlton had several games. Um, played with Brian Kidd, Nobby Styles, Paddy Crerand, Alex Stepney, David Sadler, all these from United, but also from City, Bell, Lee, Summerby, Doyle, all them. It, I can only say it was amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. And Bobby Charlton, he'd be in his 40s maybe, he was majestic. You know, both feet, uh, Crossfield passes with Fade, he'd score three or four goals every game from the edge of the box. And, and he was so, you know, people think, oh, he's, you know, Bobby's so gentlemanly, he was so competitive, so competitive in what he wanted to do. If he didn't give you the ball, he'd give you a volley and, you know, quickly. And and they wanted, he knew, you're in the presence, I think, of greatness. You know, they're all great, but Bobby and George, but Bobby played these games. It was, he's got this aura and it's almost like, well, all the crowd had come to see him, so he better do something special. Um, and they would, you know, the thing is to entertain, you know. So my dad had me practicing as a young kid, both feet off the floor, like Bobby Charlton. And you, I've got that. That's a that's for me was like a I did it in my own way, but I did score goals like that, you know, boom, boom, boom. Not like Bobby, not as many as Bobby, but at a level. So then I would then pass that on to people. So say, for instance, we had a we had a kid at United called um. Oliver Rathbone, his dad played for, his dad Mick played for, for uh, Blackburn. Now he was well behind physically. He was a late developer and so on. So we had to do something. And we said, well, look, shoot, practice shooting from long range because you're not going to get in the box physically. So penalty spot, five shots with your left foot, five with your right. You know, just into the back of the net, hit them as hard as you can, like Bobby Charlton, both feet off the floor. Then move back to the edge of the box, another five, another five, then back another, eventually shooting from 35 yards or something. Boom, boom, boom. Now he did it religiously over a time. And then he, he got, he went to, Trans, uh, he went to Rochdale. And a year or so later, you know, a year or so later, I get this picture of him midair, both feet off the floor. And he sends me the caption, <laughs> off, both feet off the floor like Bobby Charlton. So that's where my dad has passed on an image to me that he's seen of Bobby and I've practiced it there and then I've passed it on to him. So there's your vision of the game actually physically feeling it and doing it. So I think that's important. But then, yeah, you do have to have break the game down into, in, into certain parts um, for, for sure. And I think what's happened because it's, it's easily easy to see, it's the helicopter view of tactics, the, the tactics board, that's how a lot of people see it. But you must get inside the, the player's head that you're, you're dealing with because he's got to be technically capable of what you're asking him to do. So you've got to think that. And then you've got to think, well, is he capable yet? So then you need a series of little capabilities. What's he ready for? So can he, can he control the ball, drag it and dodge? But can he drag it and dodge with his head up so he knows what he's going to do before the ball's coming? So that would be a little mental model I've got for on-the-ball stuff. Now, off-the-ball stuff, what's he do? 
Um, he's got to get his position right. He's got to get his body position right. He's got to get his scanning. Is he looking for where the ball is, where the space is? There might be some deception, deceptive movement. Um, and then he's got to get his timing to come off or make his move at the right time. And then he's got to um, get the technique right, whether it's the smooth pass or the receiving or so on. So, yeah, I think I break it down into smaller parts, which would be the individual moving on their own. The individual with, with the ball. So where do they address the ball or take the ball to a certain point? Then it would be against an opponent. And then you'd be connecting with one player or then connecting on to other players. Yeah. And then units and games. So, yeah, I think you do have to have a really clear idea in your mind, a model. But one of the ones that's maybe not being looked at as much is look at it from the player's eye view. You know, what are they seeing? Well, Paul, when you look at... Uh sessions practices for, from your standpoint and from your toolbox of coaching strategies what do you feel like every practice should consist of i think there's probably some things you say go all the way through but it all, it all depends depends on on what you're doing at the time um you know what type of practice it is is it a full game is it a part of it or so on um what what you do need to, to develop skills is that you need the, the representative picture of the game. So it's got to be like the game. It's got to be a picture they can see and recognise again in the game. And, it, and, and for that to be clear and memorable. So it's got to have clarity and it's got to be memorable. And, you know, for learning to play, take place, you've got to organise a practice where there will be regular patterns, not always the same, but something similar happening, which can then be learned by repetition. So you've got to give something that's clearly, whoa, I can see that picture again, or it's possible for it to happen again. And that's why sometimes people, they jump to the 11 aside too soon and they've not sorted out a 2v1 yet. So unless we get that 2v1 habitual, or now we've got 2v2, well, let's look at that picture, get that really good. But if you put all that into an 11 aside, it can, you can, sometimes you can't see the wood for the trees. That's not to say you don't play 11 aside, but you break it down, you go back into it and try and make it as clear as you can. Um, they would do it. I mean, what would depend on what your practice is, you, you would like them to be absorbed in the practice because in the game, if it's representative of the game, they're going to be absorbed in the game. They're going to have to look for cues, going to have to be alert. It's transitioning all the time. Um, you know, things are happening, your position is changing. So you need them to be absorbed in the game. So you don't need too many rules that I'm thinking, what am I doing now? You don't need too much talk from the, uh, from the, from the uh, coach, you know, if he's coaching it, might be the odd point here and there, or he breaks it down, he lets them play for, that's how we used to do it generally, seven or eight minutes, let them play, then I might make a couple of points, then let them play again. Last thing players want is it's stopping, you know. I've seen some things where people get it wrong, they think, they, they call it drive-by coaching. Well, yeah, you can do that. But they do drive-by coaching, they pull the kid to one side while the game's going on. Now, you watch any kid who's doing that, he's looking at the game. He's not listening to the coach properly. He wants to be back in the game, you know? Now, there'll be a time and a place for everything, sure. But, you know, you don't want to be in the middle of the game talking to someone while the game's going on, unless you're making a little point here and there. Um, it, it would be really important, yeah. And I think there's 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 a, there's a lot of things that you, you want to have in, in practices. Um, and it depends on what type of practice you're after. So... Say, for instance, on a, on a Monday, uh, uh, and it depends what's gone before it, because what happens before you practice will make a difference to how you're doing it and so on. So uh, on a Monday, because they'd played their matches and we were at uh, United, on, on a Monday morning they went to college, we didn't want to fill their heads with loads more stuff, too technical, too, or too tactical or too much in the afternoon. They'd already been to school. They've had the weekend off. We just want them to play football but we want it to be really high level and we want them to get the key points of repetition. So particularly Jim Ryan had a, a great practice for combination skills, timing, dribbling, um, turning, disguise. So we used to do a lot of that and then we would uh, do one session of that and then the, the atmosphere was very sort of playful. They'd go and have a cup of tea, a cake, a biscuit or something. Then we'd go in the cage and we'd play 13 aside. So the stuff we've just done, 
was all the skill stuff. So that's like a prep for the next session. The next session is not like sitting you down in a classroom and going over loads of stuff. It's just like we're having a break and, and we're having a cup of tea. And then we go in there, no real set warm up, just a little bit. And then we go and play. 13 aside it was, and we mixed ages. So it was like a big game in the park. So all that went before it led to the next bit, because 13 aside in this cage, well, you had to be really alive. You had to be really, uh, so you were practicing the sort of skills that happen in the moment. A lot of uh, quick reaction skills, dribbling combinations, one-twos, uh, interceptions, getting back, reading things, the non-stop bit of the game, not, not set play. Um, so really clever, inventive play and reactions. Ball could hit the wall and so on. So you need to be absorbed in that. So we didn't know, we didn't speak to them. Well, we used to have a bit of a laugh with them or we joined in and played. I joined in and played sometimes. Um, and the other coach, so you, I, I was lost in it. You're lost in the game. So in that, I think that's the perfect way that you learn some of the skills that are happening regularly in that environment. So you'd have World Cup winner, future World Cup winner, Paul Pogba, Jesse Lingard, other people who became internationals at 18. Then you would have 16-year-olds 14-year-olds, and then sometimes we'd throw in someone like Rashford, who was really a talent, and we'd put him in. Now, the one thing about that, people say, oh, it's dangerous. And so Look, the older ones knew not to smash the younger ones. They would be physical with the older ones, so that was good for the younger ones to see that, and they would learn things off them. So it's in that sort of environment, um, you've set it up, and there's a woman, I think, called Barbara Fredrickson, done this research on creativity. So creative they did research that they showed one group of people really creative, fun uh, movie clips and jokes and so on, got them in a good mood. And then they showed others really uh, stuff about the wars and, 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 and really, really upset. Maybe not so, you know, obviously not really great stuff to watch. And the, they, they researched it and found the people who'd been in the, the uplifting stuff were far more creative in the practice. So they call that broaden and build. So those people, I think their awareness is broadened. They broaden because they're, they're in a good mood, right? And then they could build all the connections, the synapses in the brain can see all these little connections. That's a little one, two that you're getting off Pogba or as a feint or something like that. So to me, it was, um, that shows you, you what you do, what you do and how you set it up and the atmosphere you create will affect the learning of what you do. If we went in there and stopped it and said, no, you got to do this and you got to do that and you need to do this, yeah, I don't think it'd work. Now that would be maybe the next day. A lot more direct coaching for something like some defending because there's pretty much one way we want, want it done. We want it done this way and this is where we want you to do it and you need to know this model of doing it and why. So that then when you get on the pitch, people say, oh, the defender is a goalkeeper without talking off. Well, you're giving them that model to then talk through on the pitch. So it's a different, whole different way of learning for two different things. And I think, you know, that's important to know how people learn and what, what part of the game fits with it and, and so on. Yeah. We speak quite openly there, Paul, about mixed age groups, this learning through osmosis, the, 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 the benefits of having young ones playing with older ones. And, and and it's very evident as well the history shows and displays through the development of players that have come through United system, it works. It's it's functional. Uh, so it has lots of benefits. Many may say age for age group and be very mindful of that. You spoke earlier about when you were with your dad, you played on the park with your mates. Somebody would just rock up, you're playing, and that's what that's how it was. What are the ben the benefits are significant? What are the trade-offs though in actually having these mixed age groups if you're not mindful of the management and the control of all of that? Yeah, it wouldn't wouldn't be in competitive games, it'd be a more friendly, playful game. So you have to make that atmosphere right to be sure. You've then got to make sure you, you're strict with the older ones. They all know you referee it strict if you need to. You've got to nowadays you'd have to get you'd have to really you'd have to make sure the parents all knew and they were all in with it, you know, because, you know, they'd have to understand what was going on. It's no use little Johnny getting cracked with the ball. And then they say, well, look, in my mind, if you're, especially if you're trying to be a footballer, it's more dangerous not to go in that environment in terms of your chances of making it as a player get, could be quite, you know, uh, could be less than quite a bit if you don't get that opportunity. 
it's one of the best ways to, to learn. It's one of the most natural ways we learn. In 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 lots of ways, we are hunter gatherers. In 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 lots of the 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 characteristics and the skills that you need to play sports, ball sports, soccer, football, um, they're all hunter gatherer things. So you are positioning. What's your positioning to hunt? You know, against or to go against your opponent. So do you get blindsided them? Blind, but you know, downwind of them. Are you looking, scanning for the opportunity? Are you scanning for danger? Are you, so all those are really keen things you've got to you've got to look for. And um, then, what's your movement like? Do you just run about like mad, or do you wait and prowl in the long grass and then run quick to make the kill and make a diagonal run behind the foot? You know, the 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 defender to get the shot at goal. You know, do you have disguise and deception? You know, you, you, are you looking like you're not really interested then, but all of a sudden, bang, you know, you've gone for the wildebeest or you've got the big centre half, he's not ready for you. So there's all those sort of things and the timing of it, the cunning, and then working together as a group, you know, how do you work all that? So I have no doubt that we, if we're not careful, if you have passes around, passing around um, mannequins too much and you've got lack of opposition and it's not the right competition and it's not not the right level then you aren't picking all these cues up you're not training these predator characteristics that all the top players have and how do you learn from them best by playing with and against people who've got those skills who are a little bit older that's how you do it i would say you're gonna if you're gonna start playing against men when you're 18 and you, all you've done is playing against your own age group that means even if you're in an academy what was it 98% of academy players aren't going to be good enough? So you've been playing against people for so many years who aren't good enough. And now you're going to play against an age group from 18 to 36, say, who've been playing for years, who know all the craft, who've got all the cunning, who've got all those things. And if you've not had step by step, um, you know, exposure to some of that, then you, I think you're really, you're going to be underprepared. And I would say you don't have to look at the top, some of the top players, Rooney, Suarez, uh, any of the top players that, that you see, Messi, you know that they've had, you know, they've had exposure to those those environments. I mean, that answer, the way you describe that, praying and hunting and gathering and, and several other examples on this podcast of you telling stories. And I've spent time around you where you've delivered sessions and you've told stories and you capture capture imagination and i think it's a regular occurrence for you to to tell stories what are the benefits of storytelling in in learning and in development um well i think you, everybody grows up with stories don't they it's, it's again it goes back to the probably that you know ages uh, ago that you would tell a story about what happened to you and what was happening and um stories you go down the pub you go people are telling stories what just happened and they find something humorous or they find something that's really important um and and stories then they grab your attention stories are memorable because they might be outside you might have an analogy or something that's outside of football but really resonates with you You'll be careful with analogies because what, what an analogy might mean something to you, but not mean anything to anybody else. Um, but um, yeah, they're, they're memorable. The other thing about them is once you know that story and you use it in your coaching, it means that you can have quite a, a little bit of a story that gathers an idea for the for the game. But you only need to say one word or one phrase, and the players will remember all the story. They'll, they'll remember the story that relates most to them because they're a defender or an attacker or so on or whatever it is. So for all those reasons, the stories are stories are good and they bring you the you bring the coach more like out, I, it takes him out of the bubble of being a coach and sometimes into the realm of being like the players. Or I remember when I was a player or we did this or you know these sort of things. Or like Sir Alex used to tell stories about were well, you doing this for your grandparents or your parents or. Your, whoever else and you you attach it to to emotion so i think that's why stories stories are are so good and um and themes uh, we used to have themes at times that we would use that then you would use the, the general theme but then some words that would back it up yeah um within the language yeah when you say theme what uh what do you mean 
Well, you might have something that's become, say, we would try and do a theme for a tour. The, fir the first one we did, um, this was 90, 98 or so, like, yeah, you see, it's a threshold mo moment. You realise how much you can do with young kids on and off, on and off the pitch. So um, we were going to the Dallas Cup. We'd been invited, but for whatever reason, we didn't quite have enough players in the squad that we had because of the age groups or whatever it was. So we needed about six more players. So we got some six players from different, coming over from different clubs or, or from around the country. So they came, but we said, well, look, they're only just coming. They don't really know the lads very well. So every Friday, what I used to do, and this is good about the different thinking and going to a different place, different environment. Jim Ryan and I used to go to uh, go for a coffee every Friday and we'd have an hour or so just, we chat about anything, could be, it was a different environment, but then we'd start, start talking about some of the football that happened that week or or just ideas. So we started to get this idea and Jim had the, the, the first bits of the idea. We said, we've got these, uh, we've got these, co uh, we've got these players coming over. We need to integrate them. And I said, well, they'll probably be all right. We can get on attacking wise. We'll just play. It'll be natural. I said, but defensively, they might need a bit of help organizing them. So what we're going to do, how we're going to do it. So we thought of some little sessions we might do. We thought about British bulldoggers getting them all in a chain and, or, or into a, a link and so on. And then, and then, um, then we thought about the old one of putting a rope around people. So you look, you've all got to move together and we hold it. So we got these exercises down and thought, well, we maybe try some of these and see. And then Jim said, well, you could do with the symbol that, 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 that brings it together. So we've got the idea of the ropes. And then he said, nah, I tell you what, rope, uh, a chain, because then you've got the chain. They're all linked to the people who are new. We'll have to link to the new, uh, to, to our players. And we'll have to do all this sort of stuff. So he said, okay, so listen, Jim, it's a great idea, but um, I'll see you later. We'll sometimes go for a drink. And on a Friday night bef before the weekend, we'd have a couple of drinks. So we've had a coffee, we went home for a couple of hours. And sometimes an idea, when you've got these ideas, they have to gestate a little bit. You have to give them a little bit of time to think and so on. So this give it a little bit of time to go over, went up, had a drink with Jim and the atmosphere is nice. It does make a difference where you are. So it's Jim and I are having a chat. We're getting a bit distracted. And then we start, right, what about this chain again? You know, what can we do? So, um, We've had a couple more drinks, which gets the ideas going. And uh, Jim, Jim said, um, "Yeah, we've got this. We, we've got this. You want this symbol, this chain?" He said. So I said, "Well, why don't we? Why don't we make each letter mean something for the defending?" So the the letters. So I said, "Why? Why don't we make it mean something so the C can compact, the H can be hard to beat, the I can be in position." Uh, the A could be in, uh, A could be attack the ball. The I could be in position, and the N could be never switch off. Yeah, great. Have a couple more drinks, and we're there. And he, he said, you know, I think we could we could do something else with it. You know, these are only kids, but we could do say a hacker, like a hacker type thing. They got these sign. So this little hacker we made up was going to be um, right. A sign for it. C was compact. The H was hard to beat. The A was attack the ball. The I was in position and the N was never switched off. So we've, we've got this idea swimming now. So we get out, we, we, we did the training with the kids and Tony Whelan was coming. So Tony bought into this completely. He was one of the coaches and uh, I think it was Gary Worthington and a few, few of them. It was great. So they, they get that. Then we we had them in, we, we were a bit, we weren't really prepared, but in the foyer of the hotel, it was a YMCA we stayed in before we went to the States the night before. And Tom Heaton was on this trip, the goalkeeper, third team goalkeeper, the third goalkeeper at United now. And um, uh, what, what happened then was Bill Bezik, we were doing like, we were setting some aims. We'd done something like the British Lions had done aims of their trip. We'd shown this film of the British Lions. And now they were putting down these aims and they put down their never break the chain, these kids. So then Bill Bezik came in walking past and we knew Bill from doing some work with him, who is the sports psychologist, worked with uh, Derby and worked with uh, Steve McLaren in England. So um, he said, oh, this is great. Go on, explain it to me, lad. So they explained it. And he said, well, you know, when you'll need this most, boys, don't you? And they went, no, no. He said, you'll need it most when you've got a problem. So we thought nothing of this. And then we get to the airport. And we're now expanding this chain. So uh, it's because these little kids, they're only 12 going, going around. We shout every time there's a chain shout, they had to make a chain and come together. So we didn't lose any. And it became, you know, it got, it just expanded and expanded the whole idea. We get to the States, we get picked up. And the bus driver who was with us for the week, he started off, he was 
pretty miserable really couldn't get anything out of him couldn't really talk to him nothing but then we said we got him can we get the chain music which was uh the grand prix music never break the chain by fleetwood max so now we've got music we've got the stuff and so, so they start off the games and to be fair they played brilliantly they played really well they won the first two or three games live on tv everybody was making a fuss because not only that what we started to say to them then was Tony, I think, had the idea. He said, well, why don't we expand this chain and we do it off the field as well? So the C means compact. There's no splits in the group, no cliques. There's nobody, the new boys, or the old boys, we're all together. So you're all together, whatever you're doing. The H was hard to beat in terms of standards of, of dress, of timekeeps and so on. Uh, the A was attack the experience. The I was in position, be in the right place at the right time. You know, don't be going off in the bar or out the hotel. And, so, and the N was never switch off from your responsibility. So we had all this. A bit of a long story, but it's, it's, it, it, it showed you how you could build it up. And it just started building up this. So they, had, they, they were doing great. The, everybody was all over them in, in the hotel and so on. Now, at the hotel, there was... Uh, the main sponsors, someone like Deodor or something like that, they had a big room selling stuff. So about six of the lads went in, and because they were doing so great, they were like the darlings of the tournament, they gave them a load of free tracksuits, free boots, free stuff. So we didn't really know about that at the time. So until this lad came to us at the pool, we were we were by the pool. It was a nice, actually, nice trip in, in Dallas in the, at Easter. And this lad who now works, Damien Allen now works as the academy manager at Stockport. So he's only 12 and he's bought into this chain idea. And he comes to us and he says, I've got to take all my gear back. I, I want to take it all back. We said, why? What's not fit? No. He said, no, no. He said, it's breaking the chain. Everybody's arguing because this chain, some have got it, some haven't. It's a real problem. So he said, oh, get it. we have to get them all in, have a meeting. So they had this meeting and they agreed amongst themselves to give the gear back so they wouldn't break this chain. And I, wow, this is, this is unbelievable. They took all the gear back. And actually, because they took it back the next day, they give us all gear. Right? So maybe that's a lesson as well. But we all got the gear the next day. And um, I knew from then on, we're going to win this tournament. So it gets to the semi-final, the final, and they, they were using it as a chant before the game and so on. But... So they end up winning winning the tournament. And it just, it was an amazing experience. After the game, all the hotel people, that's the other thing we said. He said, if you're behaving well, you'll grow the chain. You get more fans. So they got loads of fans. All the people from the hotel came to watch them. There was loads of United fans there. And it grew the chain. So that whole experience then, they were on the bus. I mean, we've got videos of Tony on the bus. Health and safety won't be allowed. Now, he's, he's, he's playing the air guitar for the chain music um going ac across the seats and everything you get locked up now but um the whole point of it was it, it re we realized how much if you if you really planned it and thought about it you could have a theme that really caught people's attention and i suppose you could do that in any light any sport or business so on and if you really work at it and you get the people into it it sort of it's just one bit encapsulates everything you you want to do you know when you're watching players, you mentioned uh, you mentioned some players earlier on. Now, just changing tack slightly, if we look at players, a player, when you are when you are observing a player, what lets you know what they want? Because we spoke about the detail, and you go into that in in, in minutia, which is which is great to hear. But what lets you know what what is required? Yeah, well, I think first of all, you're looking at those things like that spirit of football. Is he is he fully absorbed? Is he in the game? Is he is he wanting to win? Is he competing? Is he is he alive to all those things? You know, and then maybe if he's not, you know, there might be some reason off the field or there's this this there's something that you need to get the, the right motivation and so on. Um but it's it's a really good question because to me, the biggest motivator is progress. If they know they're learning, they're gonna to come to you more. You know they're gonna they're gonna say yeah what what can you give me they'll start asking questions progress is the biggest motivator so then you've got to like you say zoom in on what you think they need now that will all depend on what age they are where, where they are at that present time and what, what what you'd expect but then yeah looking at the at the individual um you look at them on the ball you look at them off the ball 
and um, you, there's certain obvious key things. Have, have they got technical control of the ball? Have they got the um, the receiving ability to just control the ball? And what I really like is dragging the ball. Can they drag the ball, the inside of the foot, so it's it's there all the time? Now, if you can drag the ball and have it close to you, know where it is without looking down too much, that means you can be aware of the rest of the game. You passed, you moved, you dribble. So if they haven't got that, they take bigger touches. Now they've got to look down for long and they come back up. So dragging and dodging, I think, is something that's really important in that sense. Now they can drag drag it to one side or they can drop the shoulder and, and, and take it with the outside of the foot the other way and then be able to make a pass. Um, if the guy comes to stop them, have they got the ability to turn? So to the ability to not just do a turn, but to get it at the right time. So can you get your body between the man? Can you... Can you receive it? Can you feel him? And then turn quickly. So you need to move away quickly. He chases you quickly. So when you turn, he goes flying past you. So do they know about the changes of direction? Do they know about disguise? So have they got little bits of disguise where it make it look as though they're going to do something that then with small, late movements, they can disguise it and turn away? Um, so do they hold the ball for the right amount of time in that sense? Um, would be some, you know, some of the key things in terms of where did they get it? Do they do they take the ball to the right place? Um, you know, would would be key. So, say for instance, this is exactly the sort of instance you say. Well, what do they need next? Here's a good example of how tactics can be helped by knowing what they need next technically. So, it was a groundbreaking moment for me. It's like, wow, yeah, that, that penny's dropped there. So, I was coaching the under 18s at again against Black, Blackburn away. Jim Ryan was always sort of with me a lot of the time. So, uh, they were pressing a lot. You know, they're pressing, they wouldn't let out, out of our own half. They were really doing a good job getting in, our, in the faces. You couldn't play forward, it was difficult. And we had uh, a right back who was really a midfield player, a lad called Connor McCormack, who would normally be getting the ball close to him in midfield and just playing five, 10 yard passes, so on. But he was playing at fullback. So we got them in at half time, and I and I I said all the tactical things you would you would say. Look, they're pressing us, which means we need to go over them, around them, through them if we can. So we need an angle to go wide, but we also need to have strikers making runs behind. We need to be able to go through the line. So, so I, yeah, I gave all this. But really, what what Jim did next was was hit the nail right on the head because he. He gave a technical solution. So he said to Connor, well, look, you're, you're not just playing in midfield now. You're playing at right back. So you need a bigger range of passes. So you can't just stop the ball in front of you. You need to take the ball so you can address it to the side. So if you take the ball to the side, now it's on your right foot. You can clip, bend the ball down the line over the top. You can hit a straight one over the top towards the striker. You can reverse it. You can play one to the wide man or you can reverse one into midfield. So now you've got all these technical options all due to the fact that you're addressing the ball instead of having it a yard in, you know, a foot in front of you, you've got a yard to the side. So then you, that's that's really a process for thinking my way through. So yeah, in, in answer to your to your to your question, I could go through a million situations. What do they need next? But I think it's better. And what I've tried to do at the FA is give a little bit of a model in terms of looking at positioning. What's the positioning like? How do they gain an advantage over their opponent? So say it was a striker off the ball. Is he, is he got his back to the, to the defender or is he better off because he wants to cover the ball, he wants to come off straight? Or does he want to come on the blind side? That will give him more advantage to the defender. Things like that. And then your body position, is it side on so you can see forward and back? Can you open up? Um, then, it, then it would be looking at their scanning. How often do they scan before the ball comes? How often do they scan as the ball's on the way? When do they scan? You know, they've got to scan at the right time when it gets to the guy who's passing it to them. Do they get eye contact with the with the guy who's receiving it? Then it would be movement. So all different movement skills about their actual movement, sidestep, running sideways, backwards, crossover steps, jockeying. Are they good at those? What's the transition between one to the other? So it might be a defender who, who doesn't transition well from sort of um, jockeying to sprinting. What's his transition? So there'd be things like that. Disguise, as I said, disguise movement or disguise there. And then timing. You know, do they hold the ball for the right amount of time? A lot of people now have been told to play quick, ball speed, two touch. Yeah, a lot of the time it's that, but sometimes it's not. 
sometimes it's hold it for the right amount of time to entice someone to play the to, to let the picture change so yeah I, i've sort of got a format i can go through systematically in my head quite often when you see it you'll you'll see things straight away but i think this is a good format to have if you're dealing with a team now that you have so you've got an assistant coach You've got um, sports scientists and uh, physio, and you're saying to the, the, the mall and analysts, go, right, well, let's check through these, positioning, scanning, so on. Let's check them. Let's check them between us. We'll, we'll take one or two each. And then, then you've got a more systematic way uh, of looking at it, yeah. Well, Paul, it's interesting. Our listeners, they won't see you when they're, they're listening to the pub podcast, but obviously we were watching that you live what you're talking. I can see you moving around and, and obviously getting very expressive and, and really just living what it is you're saying. And um, it, it's been fantastic. And honestly, I wish we had another hour, but I know time is of the essence. So final question for you. What is your greatest curiosity about coaching? Um, I'm curious about all of it, to be fair. Uh, you, and I think you, you do to go, go through little phases of looking at particular stuff. So, the you know, my last phase, I've always been into, like I said, as a young kid, looking at how it works, the technical side and so on. Um, and uh, the last bit of the FA, I felt that was a bit, uh, it was an opportunity there where there was maybe not so much focus. So we're trying to um, educate people's attention to some of these technical or individual tactics. There's a lot of work going on with the other one. So that's been been one of mine. But I mean, coaching has all sorts of facets, doesn't it? So how, how do you get your message over? The language you use, I think, is quite is interesting. Like we said, themes that then you use the language that that links to it. Um, as you've just said, the the way you use your body, your arms, and so on. So we're talking like gold dust, you need to pick it up from anywhere. I went to I went to see the Halle Orchestra. And you're listening to the music, but then I, I got captivated by the by the conductor and how light, small movements made a little difference to someone, but then a big crescendo movements with his arms and so on, and how you could be a lot more dis, de, demonstrative to the to the um, players in the right way, you know. And I had good examples of that, say with Jim Ryan, using your body language. How do you get it over? Um, how, how do you get that? So he would talk about rhythm and he'd say changing rhythm. So he would talk about control pass around the box. Say it's going to be moved quick, control pass, control pass, control pass. But then you might change the rhythm. So it's control pass, control pass, control pass, 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 pass. You've changed the rhythm. And what you do then is you suck the opponents into your rhythm and then you change the rhythm. So he went, it's ba bump, ba bump, ba bump. And he'd do it with the sound, you know? So you try and get that idea over. So you, all those things make me curious. How do you get it over? What's the language? Um, I, I, it's sort of limitless for me how, how you would do it. Um, I, I think the bits we probably need in this country that makes make me curious is now this. There's a lot of good work going on, and uh, so obviously a lot more tactical within academies than it used to be. But I think this bit of getting the the connections between players. Um, being having the individual ball control and then the connection between players um, is 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 absolutely sort of vital. But that's depends on what stage you're at. I mean, Arsene Wenger was was did a, a podcast with the FA and he, he he talked about yeah the connection is A to B, one player to two. But he said if you really want to get into the complexities of of things. It's A to B to C, and they all in on the act. They all know C already knows what B is likely to do, and in, and in the way football is going now, it's so well coached at the highest level. I think a, a level of of controlled chaos would be one of the real ways to get through. Clever, real combination play in the moment, passing and running, combining, um, disguise. Um, Another analogy I had for that is is like play like wild horse horses running free. So I don't know if you've ever seen a film of that. You know they're off, but they go for fun. They just run in for fun. There's nobody going with them. They just run, and they they go in a pack. They go together, but it's not always the same one leading. One goes after the other, so they interact, but the pack stays the same. Nobody straggles off the back. They keep close, so they're just moving 
um, off each other. Um, and and then you know the hair that the the main is going back. They're so full of fun and they're enjoying it so much, and it looks so free. And it's the way they move is just interacting off one another. And the dust going up, they're trampling everything in their path. That's that's sort of a vision of well, what you what you're curious about. Could you get parts of the game like that? I, I think we've seen it. You know, parts of how Liverpool have done it, how Man United used to do it. The best teams when they really play and combine quickly. Uh, that's really exciting. I think, yeah. Well, Paul, we can hear your words, but we can sense your attitude. That, that, that to me, it's it's the, the rich experiences that you've shared are, are, are absolutely our goldest. The the important part of it, and and throughout this podcast, it's been it's been riveting. So, on behalf of David and myself and the listeners. Can I thank you ever so much for your sharing of so many wonderful analogies, uh, stories, which which have been, it just brings it alive. It, it's constant. And they've been like that through, throughout the podcast. So thanks ever so much. It's been excellent. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks, David. Thank you, Paul. Great to see you again.